Hello and welcome to the Macho Macho Man edition of Romaniacs in which our panel will refuse to get off your fucking laptop until the police are called. I'm Dorian Linsky and this week, among other things, we'll be looking at how the Brexit debate and national and international politics more generally have become a contest in toxic masculinity. With me are a couple of our regulars. Hello to Ros Taylor, editor of LSE Brexit. Ros, you've come back from Budapest. That's uh, right. Now, now under the thumb of star populist hard man Viktor Orban. Mm. Um, how, how is it these days? Well, it's a very modern, uh, upbeat city. It's just when you talk to people, you find out that it's actually becoming a really repressive state. Um, as I say, it's, it looks, it feels a bit like Rome in some ways. But then you uh, begin to talk to people and they say, well, what Orban is doing is very clever. He's managing to shut down essentially quite a lot of the media who disagree with him by with gradually, not, not, not by, you know, actually shutting them down, not by locking up journalists like uh, is happening in Turkey, but by starving that uh, media of funds and making it harder for them to operate. And the university where I was delivering a lecture, Central European University, is run by George Soros who is Victor Orban's enemy number one. And that has essentially been told it has to leave uh, because they came up with a law uh, quite on a technicality that meant uh, something about space um, that basically meant it had to close down. So they're not closing it down in a direct way. They do it all via different laws, special measures, you know, all these kinds of little, little things. Sinister. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Calamara to our second regular, Alexandreou, master of all trades and jack of none. How are you? I'm all right. Um, the two men bidding to be our next prime minister visited Northern Ireland yesterday. Um, did we learn anything new about, about the backstop or these two lovely gentlemen? No, nothing. Uh, we literally... No, have, you can move on. <laughs> we have literally reset to uh, 18 months ago. <laughs> That's what's happened. Their plan is exactly the same as Theresa May's was. 18 months ago. But do they have a special technological solution like microbots or something? No. OK. It's also been a big week for the Brexit Party's stunt MEPs making their big entrance to Strasbourg, which they discovered was quite far away. <laughs> they all turned their backs on Ode to Joy like the petulant shits they are. And Claire Fox claimed that Parliament rose after half an hour when she knew full well that MEPs were going into negotiations instead and that other MPs who actually do their jobs and earn their salaries... Uh, were there until uh, 8, 9pm. Um, is this just the age of the trollitician? They're not. They're just going in uh, being as, as sort of foul and difficult as possible? Look, I mean, they were democratically elected. Um, I don't think it was a mystery how they were going to behave. I don't think anyone was under any illusions that they were going to go and be constructive. So I guess they're doing what they were elected to do. They were elected to go there and be obstructed, be assholes, and that's what they're doing. So they're um, earning every penny. Yeah, they're earning, you know, <laughs> uh, no, nobody could do the job of asshole better than Claire Fox. <laughs> so she's but been Mar sent there to do I know, that. Martin Daubney. Oh, probably. God. Had a, His videos are hilarious. His videos are brilliant. He's like, oh, my God, I had to get on a bus and then a train to get somewhere. What is this sorcery? It's in another country. Why didn't they tell me? <laughs> Our special guest this week vies with Alex for a packed CV. Kieran Hodgson is a comedian, violinist, train spotter, impressionist, star of Upstart Crow and Two Doors Down on telly and three times Edinburgh Comedy Award nominee. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Romaniacs listeners might like to know that he's reprising his show 75, A Comic History of Britain's Relationship with the EU, at the Soho Theatre in London from 29th of July and then Edinburgh. 
The Telegraph says he ought to be the next Q in James Bond. Do they? One person <laughs> before said that this podcast. Was, yes, they love us. Very kind of them to, to <laughs> say that. Is it the is, they, is it the wish or thing? Um, got a wish or thing going. Yeah, on. perhaps. I think just as sort of general nerdiness and approachability <laughs> uh, is the is the main qualification. <laughs> he's nerdy possess. and he's approachable. It's Kieran Hodgson. Morning. <laughs> um, how how Brexit curious were you uh, before the referendum? Um. I would say tremendously so. Um, I've, you know, always been quite interested in, in politics um, in general, but um, I guess in a way that is more akin to um, someone who really likes um, Newcastle United but never goes to a game and always watches um, a match of the day every week and, and knows all the punditry and knows what to say in terms of the conversations, but doesn't really play football or, or have much mm. of a, you know, um, practical day-to-day knowledge. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of um, politics hobbyist. Um, and then after um, Brexit, I was in a, a place in my career where I wanted to do a show that um, turned this sort of um, political nerdness into uh, into comedy and my area of specialisation is uh, politicians of the 70s in particular and so I thought what's a way of taking that very uncommercial prospect and making it in some way modern <laughs> and uh, fortunately Europe reared its head uh, at that time so I was able to discuss that historical relationship with Europe and find a way of uh, of making it something that was um, You monetised our misery basically. Of course, yeah. that's yeah. what so when the artists hand- are meant to do, happens. is it not? So I believe this is how it works. When they're handing out the impressions on graduation day at comedian school, yeah. you got the 70s politician yeah I got pack. the bottom of the barrel they put the sorting hat on my head <laughs> please not the 70s please not the 70s. 70s but in the 70s you could do well um, <laughs> so yeah I spent many years on my own surprise surprise um, perfecting impressions of Roy Jenkins and Enoch Powell and people like that <laughs> and who have very interesting voices um, but which you know no one these days would really recognise or indeed want to hear um, and so yeah it was a, a great enterprise sort of two year long quest to work out how that could be that particular skill set could be something um, that was uh, attractive as an on stage proposition. You really liked out with this a whole it, political nightmare. Yeah, there were conversations with my agent when I was proposing this 70s show idea and they ran something along the lines of, this is a lovely idea, but will this be in any way relevant two years down the line, which was when I was um, planning on doing it in Edinburgh. And fortunately, uh, as it turns out, uh, the show has just become more and more pertinent as the months and weeks have, have gone by. Um, and while I was touring it a couple of months ago, I went through two Brexit dates uh, while I was doing the show. So, it, um, yeah, I've been very fortunate in that respect. I am now sick of it and will. <laughs> I'm looking forward very give much. Give us an to, hour. Yeah, doing. I, I certainly will. I certainly will. I'll give you the, the, the uh, fruits of my years of labour. But next time I will try and do uh, a show that is less fraught. 
And in your publicity photos for the 75 show, you're wearing the uh, famous Europhile jumper that Margaret Thatcher wore in the 1975 referendum. Yes, very Where hard to... Where did you to, get such a thing? Very hard to track down in this day and age. Um, the story behind it, apparently, I'm willing to be corrected by your listeners, is that... Um, Someone, I think someone's grand, gave it to Margaret Thatcher. It was just arrived as a, as a gift during the '75 campaign, and she was on the Remain, as it was, or the Yes side, uh, and so wore it for a, a photo shoot. And lots of photos were taken that are now in all the books that I was reading. And then in 2016, for referendum round two, uh, a company called Common Market set itself up to uh, do a, a reprint of these. And they only made a few hundred, I think, and they were mostly bought up by journalists and uh, <laughs> and such like. Um, so when I was looking to do the show, I wanted to track one of these down because I thought that'd make a great photo. But there were none on sale. There were not anywhere uh, to be found on eBay or Amazon or anything. So Twitter helped me out. I just put a request saying, does anyone know anyone who may have bought these T-shirts? And uh, yes, some, some journalists came out of the woodwork and, and let me borrow one. So very grateful for that. Did you feel th- Thatcher-esque when you put it on? Uh, I did when I put the boobs in. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the trick. <laughs> Tricks of the trade there. Um, Kieran is going to stay with us throughout the podcast as we round up the latest ignominies of the interminable Tory leadership contest and then cheer everyone up with Vladimir Putin's declaration that liberalism is dead. <laughs> Plus, we'll have the Why return <laughs> of Gone in 60 Seconds, where one of our panel debunks a favourite Brexit argument in a minute or less, and the boring but important thing of the week after these quick reminders from Roz. Following our successful Donald Tusk romantic fiction contest and our thrilling Marc Francois war story competition, it's time for a new writing challenge, and this time the genre is spy fiction. The Brexit party's brave infiltrators are behind enemy lines in Brussels, where the iPads are suspiciously free, but who knows what spyware is on them. (laughs) We want you to choose a Brexit party MEP and tell the story of one of their secret missions. Send us 200 words of your finest Ian Fleming and or John le Carre prose to info at com with the subject line, The Spy Who Came In For His Expenses. <laughs> and think of a good title too. We'll read out the best one and the winner will get a personalised From Brussels With Love t-shirt and mug set. And while we have your attention, are you backing us on Patreon yet? It's a good time to start. Get every edition of the show at least a day early, as soon as it's finished, plus mugs, T-shirts and a weekly column from the panel and our monthly extra show, Ask Romaniacs, if you're on the $5 or upwards. It's the best way to keep us in rude and troublesome health. Search Patreon Romaniacs or visit our Facebook page to find out more. Thanks, Roz. Now back to the Tory leadership. Uh, week four of the Great British Bloke-Off and having tried evasion, dead cats and even trying to look like a normal decent person in Jeremy Hunt's case both Hunt and Boris Johnson are now trying to outbid each other in terms of macho credentials both promising a daft punk Brexit harder, better, faster, stronger (laughs) as if the October 31st deadline wasn't close enough, Jeremy Hunt has pledged to commit to a no deal Brexit a month earlier on the 30th of September to allow a month to prepare Alex, do you think this is a good uh, strategic move? No. <laughs> like for him, I suppose, well, not strip for the country, but like for him. And we've got four months, and he's saying I only need three. I mean, that's basically the bid, isn't it? He's saying, yeah, I can do it in three. No problem. I'll have it done by the end of September. I mean, it's nonsense. 
I suppose he's trying to look relatively. I don't know. Is he relatively sensible? Is that his pitch that he's well, going he's, to allow months to plan? Well, his pitch is that if if it looks unlikely we'll have a deal by the end of September, then he'll start full throttle planning for no deal. But the idea that you can prepare for a no deal in a month is laughable. I mean, European countries have been running drills in the ports of. Calais and Antwerp and places like that for a year now. They, they've issued their detailed guidance to businesses eight months ago. It's ridiculous, this idea that we can prepare for a month. Plus, we're having this conversation and everyone is basically having this conversation with Europe listening. So it's like we're standing next to the table where we just lost our shirt saying, no, the key is to bluff better. We still have a shit hand. And they're sitting there listening. And it's like, what are you doing? Well, Hunt, <laughs> You know, they speak English, right? <laughs> well, Hunt's sort of line is that European leaders uh, already respect him and will only talk to him and presumably give him special treats. Is there any evidence that this is the case? No. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely no. I'm really softballing this stuff to you. I really have no idea where he got that from. I mean, it's it's fair to say that they would rather speak to him than Boris Johnson because who wouldn't, frankly, you know? But they would rather speak to a chair than Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with Hunt is that last year he gave a speech in which he compared the EU to the Soviet Union. So I, I don't think that's going to go down terribly well, to be honest. It's just a very low bar, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Hunt said he'd sacrifice people's jobs with a heavy heart for no mm. deals. He'll destroy your family's livelihood, but he'll do it with a sad face. Um, as he said once or twice, he was himself a businessman. Uh, at, uh, which, and destroying businesses is a bold move for any Tory PM. Um, is this just messaging for the, the nutty grassroots um, or, or do we believe him? Because he, he, he didn't used to be a no-dealer. I mean, he used to be a Remainer back in the day. No, I think he's struggling, really, to be a no-dealer. And this is a sign uh, you're seeing a glimpse of the original Remainer, because I think he voted Remain in 2016, didn't he? Mm. You're seeing a, a, a glimpse of the original Remainer kind of blinking through when he does. He, he feels he has to admit that something's going to be bad. But then he quickly rose back again. It's, it's, like, um, it, it's like some you know, ghastly character and you, you, uh, he, he, uh, who's, who's incredibly evil. And then just for a moment... You see, you see the good side, and then it blinks back again. Can I just say, I know it's not relevant information, but he has a special room in his house with a sprung floor where he can practice the lambada. I promise you, I am not making any of this up. You can look it up. This is Boris Johnson. No, this Hunt. is Jeremy Hunt, a supple oh. Jeremy Hunt. This okay. is Jeremy Hunt. He's got a special dance room with a sprung floor to practice the lambada. Quite continental. What do we think of that, Kieran? It's quite an old-fashioned dance, isn't it? <laughs> it's, um, it's like getting the seventies comedians. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's sort of yeah. It's it's up there with the Macarena as a, <laughs> as a sort of yeah thing to be practicing. Um, I don't know. I like my politicians to be uh, to be fit. You know, George W. Bush was uh, very into the mountain biking, and uh, he was a great president. Mm. Do you build him <laughs> from the boobs up? <laughs> No, because he was always exercising. <laughs> um, we so we'll assume that, that that Johnson would would definitely win, and the head to head campaign would be irrelevant. Um, 
But it's sort of looking, I don't know whether it's a question of the media just trying to keep things interesting. But his lead does seem to be looking shakier. Definitely reports on the hustings was that sort of Hunt was performing better. Do any of us think that it's conceivable that, that, that something could yet happen which would collapse Johnson? Rose? No. <laughs> I don't think we could learn anything about Boris Johnson that could collapse him at this point because mm. his quality is such. However, I think that, that now that Tory constituencies uh, members are seeing him in action, they seem to be coming out of those hustings and saying, oh, well, actually, some of them at least. Actually, um, he was a bit of a blusterer and Jeremy Hunt impressed me more and I'm going to vote for Jeremy Hunt. So I think that Hunt will do better than we expect. I don't think he can quite push push it over the line, but I think he will do better than we expect. He will do a little bit better. I think I agree. But I I just, in my waters, I sense that there's going to be more than 50% of members that literally get their ballot, their postal ballot, cross Boris Johnson and send it through that day. Mm. I really think there's over half of them that have already decided and for whom nothing will change this. They're not the most flexible thinkers, are they? Yeah. Is the primary motivation, do we think, the the fear factor, the, the fear of the Brexit party factor and this article of faith that I think most people seem to have sort of swallowed that he is the only man who can bring back the Brexit party voter. And so perhaps you might leave the hustings and think, oh, Jeremy Hunt's not so bad, actually, but... I've got to look after the health of the Conservative Party in the future and there's only one man to do that. No, do you reckon that's a, what is behind that solid I don't think it's solid that at all. Because we, we, we know from the polls that they're prepared to destroy their own party to see Brexit through. They're just obsessed with Brexit. A lot of them voted for the Brexit Party uh, and the Conservative, Conservative Party members. It's Brexit. Um, it really doesn't... Um, uh, the fact is they think that Boris Johnson is more likely to deliver Brexit than Jeremy Hunt in mm. its purest, most horrific form than Jeremy Hunt is. Kira, from a, a, a sort of comic angle... Um, Boris Johnson's sort of blustering, amiable, tough kind of vibe, which he sort of maintained for several years as a kind of quasi-comedian on TV himself, seems to be sort of running out of road. And there's certainly he's sort of there's a, there's a sort of harder, darker version of him that you see in like political cartoons. Um, do you think that his his image, in terms of how he might be kind of like impersonated, parodied, has has sort of changed significantly? It's Interesting you should say that I saw a a play uh, a few weeks ago called The Last Temptation of Boris Johnson. And it was before, uh, it it had been written just before Theresa May had resigned, but then was being uh, performed just after she had. So it was quite uh, an interesting thing to watch because it was hypothesising about some future Tory leadership bid in 10 years time where uh, Johnson was trying to put himself forward. And in that play... Um, there was a very clear delineation between uh, scenes of Boris Johnson in private where he was played as um, far more um, serious, far more, um, uh, you might say, Machiavellian. And then as soon as he was due to make a television appearance, he would Mm. muss up his own hair, loosen his tie, start waving his arms around. And the the message of the play was clearly, look, this is all a a construct. And so that was the first time I had seen the two sides portrayed and probably the the more um, 
you might say, scheming side uh, had the more airtime. Uh, whereas up to now, we've all enjoyed, I think, the the standard impression of Boris, which is the the bumble fest. Because um, if you're so maybe that maybe that is an indication of of where people will will go in their in their depiction. Because if you're impersonating the bumble fest or caricaturing the bumble fest, you're kind of doing the job of that. Yeah, yeah we, him, we were you? discussing this um, before, in that it's it's a very smart move, I think, to be a character that is um, so comical that um, an impressionist cannot puncture it particularly effectively. It's a long way from, you know, Harold Macmillan going to watch Peter Cook perform him on stage. It was so shocking the idea that anyone would dare uh, make the Prime Minister look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, it's a, it's a very clever, you know, armament against that. I dare say Saturday Night Live will continue with the, the Bumble Fest because that's, you know, that's the easier the, you know, mm. way of doing it. And if, you, if you're not particularly uh, interested in the ins and outs of our politics, then that will remain, I think, the, the shorthand. Yeah. The international code sign for Boris Johnson. Um, so both Johnson and Hunt are making uh, expensive pledges. Both say well, they will partly fund them from Philip Hammond's No Deal contingency funds, but they both claim they're committed to No Deal as a possible outcome. So if there's no deal, how can there be a war chest? <laughs> Where's one America? Yeah, this is, this is what uh, Philip Hammond has been pointing out the last couple of days quite forcefully, even from the dispatch box in the Commons. Um, basically, he's saying you can't spend this money um, that is put aside for no deal if you're going after no deal. Certainly, you can't spend it multiple times over. And certainly, you can't spend it on a yearly basis, which is something we haven't really heard discussed on the news at all. I find that quite astonishing. This is a one-off fund. If they're talking about you know, lowering the tax rate, that's, a, that's an annual um, burden on the, on the revenue. Do, do, do you see what I mean? No, no it's quite... The, it, the, yeah. the thing will fund it for the first year and then that's it. Where's that money coming from afterwards? But they sold austerity off the back of this very simple sort of household economics analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't spend more than you've got coming in. But, but surely there's, there's an equally effective household economics thing. If you've set aside money for Christmas presents and then you spend it on a holiday. You can't spend the same money on Christmas presents for the rest of your life. Yes. <laughs> like just, I think that's very good. But that seems to be the, the, the thing that they're proposing. It is exactly what they're proposing. Do you think, Roz, that, that it occurs to them to feel bad about people who literally died as a result of the austerity that they claimed was absolutely necessary because you, you, you had to balance the books, um, and now does it matter at all? No, because those people are dead and they're therefore not complaining. And most of the people who, you know, are also in a bad way have no political voice either. I think um, Johnson's plan is what he always calls turbocharging the economy, uh, which is more macho man talk, of course, to basically uh, it, it, in some way ensure that there's an incredible economic boom that brings in so much tax <laughs> revenue that we're just wallowing in money and we can cut taxes and uh, up public spending at the same time. And, you know, good luck to him with that. He he said the other day he will put a rocket up the economy, which I find really quite disturbing language. As an as an economic uh, ignoramus, by what means uh, is this proposed? Uh, because he's an entrepreneur, and so he knows how to do it. 
Don't ask. Okay. Just stop it. Oh, it's Hunt. Sorry, Hunt's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, okay. Hunt wants to put a rocket up the economy. <laughs> I find that especially disturbing because you know in in Greek we have gendered words, and economy is female. So the it, the image is really quite disturbing. <laughs> But that's always the answer, I suppose, isn't it? It's just, it's just like we'll just be better, we'll just do better. Yeah. Like, well, you know. well, that's kind of the Brexit plan, isn't it? That I'm going to be better at it, therefore I will come back. And that's why I think there's a strong Remainer argument for Boris Johnson. I've been coming more and more round to this in the last few weeks because I think actually Jeremy Hunt will just be a replay of the last two years because at the end of it, when he can't deliver it, it will be again that he didn't really believe in it. He was a, a Remainer in disguise. We need to find a proper Brexiteer. All of that will run again. Give them their hero on a white steed. Give them Boris Johnson, this true Brexiter that can deliver it. Let him fumble and then they begin to run out of road. They begin to run out of excuses. They begin to run out of people who are the true messiah. And then enter Nigel, Prime Minister Nigel <laughs> Farage. Well... Anyway, let's have one of our new regular featurettes, the boring but important thing of the week, where we put the spotlight on something that really, really matters, which not enough people are talking about and isn't really boring, obviously. Roz, what have you got for us? I've got Ursula <coughs> van der Leyen. Uh, Ursula van der Leyen is nominated to lead the European Commission, a really unexpected choice. We were expecting uh, uh, various uh, middle-aged to late middle-aged men to be nominated for this position, but it's her. And she is a defence minister in Germany, a big ally, uh, ally of uh, Angela Merkel. And interestingly, a former LSE student. So she lived in the uh, UK for a while. But uh, here's a fun fact for you. She had to change her name because of her family connections. She was pretty well known, or her family was well known, and they uh, were afraid that the Bader-Meinhof gang would target her. So she changed her name while she was studying in London so that they wouldn't carry her off and kidnap her. That's oh, bit wow. 70s for you there, Kieran. Yeah. No, yeah. did you? I see you perk up there. <laughs> Bottom mine off. Yeah, so she's... Um the reason some people are getting cold feet over her is partly because of some uh, dodgy, slightly dodgy-looking business over irregularities over defence contracts, but also because she's talked about an army of Europeans. Not a European army, and the semantics are important, but an army of Europeans, and some people are pretty unhappy about that. She's very much pro-NATO, uh, so Vladimir Putin is going to be unhappy about that. All right, maybe he's, he's, he's going to be pleased to have someone to really take on. But it's an interesting choice. Moving on, the EU referendum ruined everyone's Glastonbury in 2016. This weekend, it was Vladimir Putin's turn to harsh our mellow when he told the FT that the Liberal... People were talking of nothing else. Uh, for Stormzy, did you read what Putin told the FT? That the Liberal idea had outlived its purpose as the world turned against immigration, open borders and multiculturalism. Liberals cannot simply dictate anything to anyone, just like they have been attempting to do over the recent decades, Putin said in an interview ahead of the G20 meeting where he sounded just like an excited youngster who'd just been reading Paul Embry and Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> Take that, chatter and classes. The Russian leader, who, as it happens, is funding and encouraging anti-democratic populist movements across Europe, went on to praise the culture, traditions and traditional family values of the alleged majority. Roz, obviously awful, um, but less terrifying figures have made similar arguments uh, about the vulnerability of liberalism. Um, do, does Big Vlad have a point? He has a point. In a well, liberalism is vulnerable if it stops 
if it stops caring about ordinary people's concerns, and those concerns are sometimes seen as populist. Um, and populism by itself is not a bad, necessarily a bad thing, because it means what populism means ultimately is trying to shape your policies to help the people uh, who most want to be helped and answer their concerns. And liberalism sometimes forgets to do that because it's concerned with weightier ideals, because it's... For example, an example is the Human Rights Act. Human Rights Act, anyway, is a good, great thing. But the hum, if it, what, what point does the Human Rights Act have if it isn't enforceable? And if you look at Britain today and you look at the way, for example, that legal aid has been cut, that administrative law has, mm. is diminished, if you can't enforce your rights, what is the point of having those rights? You just create a kind of class of people who can enforce their rights and a class of people who are too poor to do so. And so focusing on things like human rights and and you could almost say forgetting about the consequences of austerity, as we were talking about earlier, is dangerous and that's when populists swoop in and they say we can sort out your problems now usually in vast majority of cases they can't and they're just using liberalism as a way of uh, harnessing some anti-elitist or anti-liberal feeling as they see it they're not the solution but they are able to use liberalism to do that Alice why is he why is he saying this he, I mean yeah. look he's he's right in one sense in that you can't tell someone to be liberal. You can't instruct someone to be tolerant. Um, liberalism is not something that can be behaviorally instructed. It has to be philosophically understood. And for 30 or 40 years, we've encouraged an education system which produces obedient economic units. It, it actively shies away from people who are who have critical thinking faculties, who question the system, who understand things deeply, who are interested in education, who are interested in knowledge, who are interested in reading about stuff. And so we have produced a generation that is largely understands things that are given to it, basically. And you can't tell someone, be tolerant. If they don't understand why there is a value to being tolerant and arriving at that conclusion themselves, you can't just oppress it into them. At some point, they're going to kick back. In, in this case, their kickback was Brexit. So he's right about that, but he's not right about the solution, obviously. <laughs> the solution is actually to create an education system in which people freely thinking arrive at conclusions which encourage a civilized society. Is, is Putin really only talking about social liberalism? Uh, rather, is, that, is, is that what he's really attacking rather than economic liberalism? No, because, I mean, he's been quite, he's been quite economically liberal within Russia as well. So uh, I think he's attacking all of it. I think, I think what he's saying is that my model of doing things is lighter and more dangerous. And he's right about that. Mm. You know, he had ta he had annexed Crimea before we wiped our ass and got got off the toilet and joined everyone to discuss it. it. It is quicker when you have no one to be accountable to. There's no doubt about that. We just have to arrive at a system where we balance speed and decisiveness with democracy. You can't. 
you can't be a ditherer forever, but you also can't be an autocracy. Which is why you need a, a 12-person cabinet, <laughs> which is a streamlined decision-making body, but which has a representative function. Muscular like a panther. <laughs> um, so one fun thing about the 70s, which is a, a fun decade, um, was that around the time, actually, of the, the 1975 referendum... Um, there was all this talk of on both the right and left of the kind of collapsing centre and also a kind of um, a sort of groupism around Pinochet. Who was it that went? Peregrine Wurstthorn um, went to Chile and went, oh, OK, obviously don't approve of the... Um, stadium stuff. Mer- stadium stuff. Disappearances. <laughs> but you've got to say, he's getting things done. The place was a mess. And there was this weird kind of... It didn't last that long but for a couple of years there was quite a lot of excitement in the sort of British ruling classes for a hard man and because that didn't happen I think perhaps a lot of people have forgotten that this that there was ever this sort of craving did you did you come across this sort of weird impulse? Yeah, yes certainly um it's there's a very good book called crisis what crisis um written by a guy called Alwyn Turner, yeah. uh, where he does a really great survey, uh, not only of the politics of the time, but also a lot of the popular culture, including sitcoms. And there's a great scene in Reggie Perrin where Jeffrey Palmer plays uh, exactly the sort of person you're talking about, uh, a guy who is going to bring about a military coup in Britain to sort it all out because <laughs> it's all gone completely to pot. Um, and there were certainly elements of that in the uh, during the Grunwick uh, strike. Uh, a big part of helping break the strike was an underground um, organisation that helped fulfil uh, all the orders that were being stopped from getting through by the strikers. You know, and there was this idea of um, pro freedom organisations who were helping to undermine. Uh, the striking workers and, you know, taking a a sort of military organisation ethos in order to do it. Um, And, yeah, I guess we have forgotten about that particular aspect of 70s radicalism because we tend to think of 70s radicalism in terms of the winter of discontent and Arthur Scargill. Um, And I think both extremes uh, alarmed uh, people at the time. Hence, you know, a strong leader was uh, found, albeit through a parliamentary system. Because, I mean, I suppose the difference between the, that we have between, between Britain and America um, is that Trump is fairly pro-Putin. And he obviously mm. has like a big kind of crush. Yeah. Autocrats and dictators. Yeah, he wants to ride bears yeah. naked together. He's somebody who would, he would happily lose the constitution down the back of that oval office sofa, isn't he? <laughs> like... It's just like, really? Can I not just do what I like? Um, but Boris Johnson has actually been very uh, critical of Putin. So there doesn't seem to be the same. Because what happened when Trump was pro-Putin was that suddenly tons of Republicans were like, oh, he's OK then. Like, yeah, yeah, he created yeah. this huge pro-Putin constituency. We don't have that because no kind of major politics. I mean, Farage, I guess. Yeah, Salisbury, I think, kind of queered that pitch. So I'm not. I'm not sure... I'm not sure this is an accurate reflection of how it might 
un, unroll in the future. But certainly this close to what happened in Salisbury with the you know, poisoning, I think it would be madness for any UK politician to kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm becoming aware now that Corbyn is um, <laughs> quite a, a sort of ambivalent about the Salisbury thing. But anyway... Um, yeah, so I th- I think Salisbury is a big, big factor in this. I don't think any of them can cosy up to Putin. And how so? How worrying finally is the um, the idea of um, with sort of Putinism or Orbanism? Actually, we see we see shades of that in the Brexit Party. Um, how much of a constituency is there for that? Because I don't think every single person who voted for the Brexit Party um, would like to see an authoritarian. Hard man. That's quite an assumption, though. <laughs> That's quite an assumption. I'm just saying not all of I them. I think making decisions is fucking hard. I don't think people acknowledge that. People long for guidance. That's why they like re- religion, because decisions are made for them. And, and I think this is Johnson's strength, in a way, because he most definitely does not represent that kind of strongman. I mean... He's not, I think, going to crack down on a free press anytime soon, for example. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a journalist. Um, he's, he, he has enough comedy, if you like, and informality about him that you can vote for him without being afraid of that kind of slightly sinister, well, very sinister, hard man, militaristic edge. Yeah. So one, one more point. Do we think that perhaps, unfortunately, that... that in the short term, the the sort of pushback against the authoritarians is going to involve doing some illiberal things, isn't it? Is it Denmark where the kind of fairly left wing new PM kind of won on um, with some quite hard line anti immigration yeah, yeah. stuff, yeah. which seemed completely, you know, from from an outside yeah. perspective, it seemed completely out of place with with everything else that the party. Um, Labour tried it with that mug. Yeah, no, really that's true. Mug. Well, <laughs> this, hey, if, if this they'd gotten slogan to, on a no, mug, this was like if they'd banning... had the chance to enforce that mug. <laughs> but this was like banning kneecaps, and like it seemed a lot harsher than the mug. Yeah, it, I don't know. Denmark is weird. It was a big surprise to me because my my niece is studying there, so I've been a few times, and I really didn't expect what I found. It's it's really polarized. I mean there are basically the vast majority of people are soft left. And then there's this core people who are proper far right. It's it's quite frightening. So I guess they're trying to combat that by at least owning it. I know that sounds really weird, but it, it's there is an extent to which if you see if you see a juggernaut moving towards something inevitably there is value to getting behind the wheel at least do you, do you understand what i'm saying i don't think you necessarily have to go that far though i think this almost takes us back to something alan manon was saying a few weeks ago on the podcast and he was talking he was saying how much he admired tony blair's slogan tough on the crime tough on the courses of crime you you just have to talk Talk mm. the talk. You have to address both audiences at yeah, the yeah, same yeah. time. Yeah. You have to address the liberals, tough on the causes of crime, and you have to address the people who are just worried about the crime, tough, uh, mm. tough on the crime. And if you can pull off that trick, I th- uh, and he did, I think you can, you can get it. But there's just nobody in British politics, really, who's doing that at the moment. 
Let's have another of our new regular slots, Gone in 60 Seconds, in which one of our regulars takes apart a standard leave argument in less than a minute. I have a watch. New watch. It's more like 65. How strict are you going to be? In, Don't... No, I'm going to be very strict. No, I, I'm going to be strict. I can't. I've practised it. I can't. No. I'm gonna, I can't. I'm going to knock you out with one punch no. if you go over 60 seconds. <laughs> in recent weeks, with Johnson and Hunt setting out their negotiating approaches, we've been hearing that old perennial, they need us more than we need them. Alex Andreu, if our listeners need to sink this one quickly, what can they say? Total amount of trade is meaningless. Size matters. UK exports to the EU are 13% of our economy. EU exports to the UK are 3% of theirs. 27 countries losing one important partner is not tantamount to one country losing its 27 closest markets, as well as the entire legal framework under which it does all trade. Trade is not a favour. We buy things we need. The fact we buy more from them does not mean they need us. It just means we're not self-sufficient. You buy more from Tesco than it buys from you. That doesn't mean you can simply walk into your local Tesco and pay for a chicken with some Japanese yen, a bag of apples, some lint and a button, and then complain they're bullying you when they don't accept your terms. Uncanny. 45 seconds. There you go. Wow. <laughs> I did it very Modern. fast. You did it very fast. I'll do a slow one for Patreon backers. <laughs> <laughs> the late night version. Sink into a bath and listen to the <laughs> This week's special guest is a one-man Brexit dividend. Character comedian Kieran Hodgson's show, 75, explores how he joined the EU in the first place. In his own words, it enabled him to perfect a series of obsolete impressions and discover that the 70s were about more than just his was, the colour brown and the words, let's go on strike again. And he's bringing it back to London and then Edinburgh. So, Kieran, the, we, we had Robert Saunders <clears throat> oh, did on you? a while back. We did. Mr. 1975. Oh, he knows a lot more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) My friend, this is a confession, my friend, um, when I was about to do the show, got me as a present his book, uh, Yes to Europe. And it was a lovely brand new edition hard book. And I I put it on my set in my show because I have all the books on stage. Um, but I still haven't read it because I was saving it as a treat for when the show really, was over. I, I, really I, I, occasionally, when waiting to do the show, I've, I flick through you know different bits and go, "Oh God, that's not what I say in the show." Cross. <laughs> um, uh, but wow, okay, is he a real brain box? He, he does know quite a lot. Of okay, um, so <laughs> try not to sound like a complete ten idiot. Questions. Then. He did. No, no. Okay. Oh, for... no. Um, <laughs> but I... <laughs> Back in school, and I love it. I did see um, a very, uh, very clever Guardian columnist uh, actually get the year of the referendum wrong the other day. Oh, um, I so I mean, it is kind of barely understood. I just remember it because of the band. I just think the 1975. Yep. I believe are named after. And then it, yeah, the referendum. In, in brackets, referendum. <laughs> referendum. Yeah. Um, uh, lots of people actually think that we had the vote before we we joined. So I mean, there's there's a lot of misunderstandings. What did you jump into myth bust? The, well, what uh... did you find exciting about you know about when you started going into it? Maybe the, the sort of things that went. Oh, that's more complicated than I thought. Oh, I didn't know that happened. Um, wow, there's there's a ton. Um, so first would probably be the fact that um, our entry into um, I'll call it the common market for now because obviously, okay, well, right. I'll do a point five. Um, obviously, in the seventies, it was not called the European Union. The European oh. Union is uh, a creation of the nineties, and uh, a big part of the beef of many people who voted to leave in twenty sixteen was that uh, they felt they had been deceived in nineteen seventy five by voting for our entry into the common market, which had then mutated against their will into the European Union. That's um, a belief. Mm. Um, so, first of all, 
not called the European Union, called the common market. Um, and indeed, the common market was a mutation of an earlier thing. So I'll just, for the sake of ease, call it Europe. Um, and uh, so that's the point five. Number one, uh, our entry into it was not easy, was not assured, was something that took a long time and uh, various failed attempts uh, on the part of both Conservative Prime Ministers and um, Labour Prime Ministers in the form of Harold Macmillan and uh, Harold Wilson. Um, uh, number two, the thing that I found really interesting was that... Um, at the time of our entry, even though the um, political class, both parties, were really keen on going in because they saw it as vital to our economic future, um, surveys conducted of the British people at the time show a very indifferent attitude at best <laughs> to joining yeah. Europe uh, at all. So it's not as if we have come down from 2016 from, from some great high mountain of Europhilia in the past. Um, not at all. Um and so this rather dicey enterprise of convincing Britain and convincing Europe that this was a good idea for both parties fell, first of all, to a guy called Ted Heath, who's um, a very interesting man and somewhat uh, controversial uh, because of recent uh, police investigations that we don't need to go into here. Um, so his story I found very interesting. He was um, a guy who went round Germany before the war and then went back into Germany as a soldier in the Royal Artillery during the war and from that drew a very strong sense of the need for a united Europe. Uh, he was the guy who won over the French, got the French to say, yeah, OK, you can come in. Worth saying that he was somebody who did actually fight in the war. Yes. And yes. that left him <clears throat> European. Oh, just, yeah. Just... The attention of Mark Francois there. Uh, yes, absolutely. His, his, yeah, his war service was um, well, crucial, I think, in the formation of his um, European uh, crusade, not a great term. Um, and then, so he wins over the French, and the French say yes, and he has this uh, big parliamentary battle to get our accession through. And in this parliamentary battle, um, interesting thing number three or four, I've lost count, is the fact that it was the Labour Party that had the huge splits, the huge civil war over the European issue that we are now seeing played out in the Conservative Party. Um, there was a, an anti-Europe wing, uh, chiefly on the left, with people like Tony Benn and Michael Foote, and a pro-European wing with people like Roy Jenkins. And um, the rebels helped Heath get us in, but this led to untold calamity in Labour during the early 70s, which were only resolved by another guy, Harold Wilson, uh, adopting Tony Benn's idea of a referendum. And Wilson's pitch was, OK, you want a referendum? Some of you. And you want to stay in? Some of you. Well, what I'll do is, when we get into power, I'll renegotiate the terms of our membership, and then we'll have a referendum about the new terms, which, fast forward to 2015, was exactly the David Cameron pitch. So I've been talking for many minutes now, but uh, and <laughs> lots taken. So which, but of it's it's, yeah, right. which, which of these impressions? Parallels are plenty. Which of these uh, these these impressions did you have raring to go then? Which were which, what was in your arsenal? Of I was very keen on doing Harold Wilson. Um, and I'm now getting the nod. Yeah, to, do Harold uh, Wilson. Do, do Harold Wilson. Well, that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> it's uh, wonderful to be uh, getting so much time on the airwaves, which I was never given uh, when I was in office. We were constantly barraged by the BBC and the papers. who did not give us a fair deal. We were doing a lot more than they gave us credit for. Um, that is uncanny. Thanks. Um, May I say he built him from the boobs up <laughs> right in the studio. <laughs> Had you, had you 
had any cause to do Enoch Powell before then? No. Quite niche, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's certain comedy clubs where that would go down. Well, yes, <laughs> tend not to be mine. No. Um, uh, no, I'd, I'd never had call to, to do it professionally, but, you know, watching all these documentaries, you do um, see him and hear that voice, which I'm being encouraged to do. I'm always a bit reticent <laughs> no. about doing it because of who he is. You don't have to but do rivers of blood. He spoke you know? with a very strange accent that is not really heard anywhere in the country anymore today. <laughs> he was from Birmingham, but he spent a lot of time during the war over in India and other parts of our empire. And so had quite literally... A uh, global accent that is very hard to pin down, and a great intensity as well. It's like a lot of these people when when they got put in the TV studio came across as huge theatrical entities because uh, I, th- I think they were used to a more grandiose public speaking style. And, and watching footage of you know Enoch Powell sitting in a little armchair from seventies TV interviews is um, yeah, it's. Um, uh, it makes an impression. Because I haven't, because um, I've read the book, but I haven't actually gone back and watched like you know footage. Mm. And um, Tony Benn, our generation, and so for you, Tony Benn was this kind of, you know, um, quite a cuddly, avuncular, mm. pipe-smoking figure. Uh, but he was like not at all. Well, and the at, referendum. Yeah, at the time he was seen as um, a total lunatic and and a dangerous man. I mean much like uh, many people would portray Jeremy Corbyn today, um, it was very much seen as a vote to stay into Europe or you may in somehow give Tony Benn what he wants and Tony Benn's the guy who's going to wreck the whole the whole shooting match. Um, so, yeah, he was seen as a, a vote. He and Powell, who ended up allies on the Get Us Out campaign, were, were both seen as um, dangerous radical men. Uh, and the, the third part of that unlikely trio is Ian Paisley, of course. <laughs> Who I'm not. <laughs> no way! You just have to. Nope. <laughs> Come on, just do a no. No, no, no. no. Go on. Nope. No, but, can you, can you, but can you do young Tony Benn? Because I think a lot of people, they have heard only old, cuddly Tony Benn. So what did he sound like? Well, he sounded very much like the elder version, oh. but um, with uh, a great deal more force. <laughs> and um, the purpose of nationalisation is, of course, the economic benefit for the whole of society, not simply for the moneyed, uh, and for those uh, monetarists who would seek to uh, strip are national assets, something like that. Brilliant. The catchphrases for the politicians—they're not as good. They're not—they're not, they're not your, your typical. No, it's catchy. Isn't it? It's ca- it's a, they're, they're not the catchphrases that you know what you get from Take the Take back control. Because <laughs> it was a kind of weird, like there was a weird tableau of sort of seventies celebrities. The poster with people for Europe includes Richard Briers, Arthur Lowe, Janet Susman, whatever. I mean, they got a lot of. They got a lot of people on board. Yes. More success, more in a more sort of organised fashion. I think, than Remain in 2016. Yes, I think mm. um, one aspect of... You don't have to do all those, by the way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my Sussman is electric. Uh, that's for paying customers only. Um, yeah, I guess they were they were more organised, and but 
the 2016 referendum, I dare say, got a lot of famous faces on board and a lot of party leaders and former prime ministers and such like, um, as did the 1975 Let's Stay In campaign. The difference, well, many differences, which I won't go into now, one of them might be the fact that Europe was still a relatively fresh enterprise at the time. Mm. And so if all the political leaders and the newspapers are saying, it's a good idea, everyone, say yes, I think uh, that seemed like a more convincing mm. uh, argument at the time. Fast forward 40 or so years and um, everyone uh, in power telling you to continue with the status quo maybe had yeah. uh, a slightly less... Yeah, also, our economy was down the shitter. <laughs> Your words Which helped mine. the argument <laughs> somewhat, didn't it? The one that always surprises yeah, no, no, no. me about that period is that we started EFTA. Every time I read it, it comes to me as surprising information because we thought, no, we'll start a rival. Yes, the, the second to the thing. Whom we then abandoned. Yeah, that we then abandoned because, you know, the, the community was doing much better. So we thought, oh, we'll join them and we left the other ones. And now you tell Brexiters after, they're like, oh, it's a vassal state. Like, you started it. <laughs> so this is, this is obviously like, this is this is a high concept show. You think? You think? <laughs> um, who's? I mean, there's lots of ways to sort of to, to skin a cat. Who do you think's doing sort of good Brexit-related comedy from from your point of view? And are, are there certain oh, crumbs? I hate Brexit-related comedy. Really? Like I'm all of avoid it. It's all rubbish. <laughs> um, it's very well worn, and I think um, both comedically and journalistically, everyone is desperate for for new angles because it, it's something that's gone on for three years and relatively little has changed in the the underlying um, sticking points, I, I guess. Um, and one of the reasons why I, I took this show back into the 70s was just to try and find another, uh, another angle on and it. And also because you could do the voices. And also, yes, the voices. <laughs> um, so, no, I wouldn't want to, to pick any... Favorites on the. On do you the think people without British without naming names? Do you think people sort of str- you know struggle that sort of topical news because Brexit has swallowed the news. It's all of the kind of gags about the news shows. It, there's there's just like there aren't enough Brexit jokes in the world, like including on the news. The news at ten gets so excited when the top is some non-Brexit related story. Yeah, do you, you remember can when see it? They go, they get giddy. Do you remember at Easter when all we we'd had this sort of five week period of of living minute to minute on Brexit, and then all of a sudden everyone went off for Easter and pretended it hadn't happened, and joy broke out across the country. <laughs> there was a million and one other things to discuss, which I think is perhaps one of the reasons for a certain um, desire to get Brexit over and done with quickly in, in anticipation of a bright morning afterwards when um, we'll, be, uh, we'll never discuss it again. So do you think, because I mean, some people say, well, perhaps, you know, because it's a divisive comedy, commissioners are a little sort of nervous about, about dealing with it. Um, do you think it's more that, do you think it's that? Do you think it's the writers are just sort of, uh, would just like to write about something else? Do you think it's fear of audience fatigue, like... Yes, I think those uh, sound fairly rational um, arguments for not putting it too much on the television. And dare I say, um, the nature of the topic makes it very hard to create comedy that doesn't come down on one side or the other. Mm. And I think television people are perhaps anxious not to play into the image of them as always 
promoting um you know remain i think let's let's face mm. it that's that's the, the 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 view of the traditional media is that they will always put remain stuff on and um i think there are uh, leave voices that are being found and being put on television but um in the main i think it's uh, safer to try and make programs about other things so we have to make do with the real life on the buses holiday special that is the brexit meps in, in strasbourg absolutely yeah What's wrong with that? Great bunch, great, great, I just took a train. <laughs> great bunch of characters. It's the end of the show, and that means something else that goes into the Brexit time capsule. Kieran Hodgson, as our special guest, what are you putting into our Noah's Ark of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU? Scotland being in the UK. <laughs> Tories don't seem to care about that, do they? Well, they did. They did a few years ago. Now they're just like, <laughs> we'll see, won't we? It's all up for grabs. Do you have particular fondness for Scotland? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a trick question. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so I spotted your trap there. <laughs> Successfully avoided it. No, I yes. can't stand the place. Oh no. <laughs> And we've just about got time for this week's foreign language clip, which is close to home. It's in French from Linda Morgan. Les candidats à la direction du Parti conservateur font tout des affirmations impossibles pour résoudre le Brexit. La réponse Restons dans l'Union européenne. Vous savez que cela a du sens. That means the candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party all make impossible promises to resolve Brexit. The answer, let's stay in the EU. You know it makes sense. Bien sûr. Bien sûr. Why do I? Bien sûr. Bien sûr. I don't know. That's how French people speak. Remember to send us your European language clips. Just record something short on your phone in a vaguely quiet room and email it to us at info at com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Kieran, thanks for joining us. Can we call you back uh, in 2059? We're working on a show called 2016. Yes, I would love that. Not doing all the. Do you do you do the? Um, you don't have to. Again, you, no pressure. You don't have to do any. Um, have you have you done the current? Worked on the current slate. No, they're of all political talent. Quite normal voiced, which is problematic. Uh, the Cameron years were very lean. Uh, I remember it was it was hard to pin him down on any aspect of his voice, really. And George Osborne was even worse. On any nobody, aspect of anything, it was well. Pin him down. Nobody ever says, "Oh, do you do you Jeremy Hunt?" Do they? No. <clears throat> I mean, Boris obviously will be a a gift for impressionists, but that's about it. It's not. It's not a golden time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Now, please stand and contemptuously turn your back on us while we play our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and thank our latest Patreon backers. Big shout from me to Rajnis Jaiswal, Ludwig Tolhurst Cleaver, Rob Easthope, Eric Carls, Victoria Hart, Rebecca Bunbury. John Cooper, Ian Battersby, Colin Horsfield and Gustavo Ordones Sanz, our favourite font. Thanks from me to Cole Murphy, Tim Maloney, Alessandra McConville, Lucy Carmichael, Melanie Roy, Neil Whedon, Colin Wilson, Connor Gillis, Graham Dave Baird and Matthew Beer. And finally, thanks from me to Joe Delaney, Thomas Askew... 
Askew, sorry. <laughs> He's not slanted. GCU Grey Area, Chris Cook, Declan Wilson, David Von Dadelson, Paul Gallagher, Matt Bailey, Mike Wilcox and David Anthony. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Alex Andreev. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.